Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois. And this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loya, your host. According to the Byzantine liturgical calendar, during the what we call the Lenten Triodion, the time of Lent on the calendar, and according to the Gregorian calendar, this is in the Eastern churches, for those who follow the Gregorian calendar, the first Sunday of Lent. We completed one week of Lent. Now we come to the first Sunday of Lent sometimes called the Sunday of Orthodoxy, which means true belief or true faith in this case. And it's a celebration of the vindication once and for all of icons, iconography, you know, images that can be depicted of Christ and the saints, the Virgin Mary, the angels in stone or wood or paint. And this happened in 842 A.D., now, we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but first of all, I want to acknowledge a few good friends here at Light of the East. I got several letters this past week, and I want to acknowledge them. We always like hearing from our listeners. I have a letter here from Michelle. Michelle is from Seattle, Washington, and she writes, Thank you for all that you do to educate your listeners about the Eastern Lung of the Church. I am on my way toward my baptism this Easter Vigil. And your program has thoroughly enriched my journey into the faith. There was so much I did not know about the Eastern Rites. But the more I learn, the more I am assured that it is the perfect place for me. And we want to thank you, Michelle, for your wonderful comments about the Eastern Churches and also our program. And welcome to the faith. Welcome to the Eastern Lung of the Church. And congratulations as you look toward your baptism. I'll remember you in prayer on that day at the Easter Vigil. So again, that was Michelle from Washington. And also, we have a letter here from Miss June Marino. And she's asking for our CD, Theosis, which has our Byzantine music on it. But she also says, if you have printed materials available, let me know. I love to learn about the Eastern Lung of the Church. I am a shut-in. I have no access to internet or cable TV, but I will continue to try to get your program on the radio. Thank you for this program. Sincerely, in Jesus and Mary, June. 
Thank you, June. And June is from the other side of the country, from Massachusetts. So we had we have coast-to-coast coast here, <laughs> listeners, writing in, which we really, really appreciate. And one more letter came in this week, and this is from Jean. Jean says this, Hello, Father Loya. I am thinking of Light of the East. I hope I can catch a podcast of last Sunday's program because the reception was terribly bad. I did not hear it. And it ruined my day. Well, that's very complimentary. <laughs> Not hearing our program ruined your day. That, that's quite a compliment. Sorry your day was ruined, but I have to admit it is a wonderful compliment to us. And Jean also wants us to know that her younger sister passed away. She was 53. Her name was Kathleen Louise, and she asked us to pray for her. I will pray for her, Jean. Kathleen Louise. So, Jean, Jean from the state of Washington, I want to thank you for your very kind letter. Thank all of you for your letters and all of you for listening. We enjoy hearing from you. So, again, let us know what you're thinking. And we really appreciate the fact, and it's very humbling for me, actually, that this program, thanks to the many Catholic networks out there, especially EWTN, that this program can reach so many people. And I want to say a special hello to those of you listening in prison. You are our special audience here at Light of the East. Now, I need you to probably back away from your radio just a little bit or from the computer, whatever you're listening on right now, because I'm going to say a word that is very explosive. And I want you to get hurt when your radio or computer shatters. I hope it doesn't, but it might with this word. It's a word we heard recently. It crops up every once in a while. We heard it from our president, President Obama, recently. And that word is, ready? Crusade the Crusades. Okay, I'll give you a little time to clean up your room there, and if anything broke or shattered or exploded. Yes, that word crusade comes up from time to time whenever somebody wants to criticize or throw something in the face of Christianity, especially the church. And it did happen recently. Our president made reference to crusade. And very few people really know the truth about the crusades. And for an Eastern Catholic, the Crusades have a particular meaning. And to understand them properly, I'm going to suggest a reference to you. There's a number of good references, but it's important to get the correct reference, to get the truth about the Crusades. And of course, the Crusades were the Christian military expeditions that were organized to wrest control of the Holy Land from, at that time, the Muslims. And historians generally recognize eight major crusades. They were conducted between 1095 and 1270 AD, so a long time ago, which is always curious why that word and the reference to crusades keeps coming up. But like I said, it always comes up whenever somebody wants to club the church over the head. But the truth about the crusades, one of the sources you can go to is a book by Thomas Madden, Thomas F. Madden, put out by Ignatius Press. But you can also go to IgnatiusInsight.com, IgnatiusInsight.com, where there's a synopsis of some of the book by Thomas Madden. And his book is called A Concise History of the Crusades. He's also the co-author of The Fourth Crusade. Now, that's the one of, of special interest to me as an Eastern Catholic. But this is what he says, and I'm reading from IgnatiusInsight.com. He says there are, of course, many references to the Crusades, and most of the time they're very derogatory. But he said it was not always so. During the Middle Ages, you cannot find a Christian in Europe who did not believe that the Crusades were an act of highest good. Even the Muslims respected the ideals of the Crusades and the piety of the men who fought them. But that all changed with the Protestant Reformation. For Martin Luther who had already jettisoned the Christian doctrine of papal authority and indulgences, the Crusades were nothing more than a ploy by a power-hungry papacy. 
Indeed, he argued that to fight the Muslims was to fight Christ himself. For was he who had sent the Turks to punish Christendom for its faithlessness? When Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent and his armies began to invade Austria, Luther changed his mind about the need to fight. But he stuck to his condemnation of the Crusades. During the next two centuries, people tended to view the Crusades through a confessional lens. Protestants demonized them, Catholics extolled them, as for Suleiman and his successors, well, they were just glad to be rid of them. It was in the Enlightenment of the 18th century that the current view of the Crusades was born. Most of the philosophers, like Voltaire, believed that medieval Christianity was a vile superstition. For them, the Crusades were a migration of barbarians led by fanaticism, greed, and lust. Since then, the Enlightenment take on the Crusades has gone in and out of fashion. The Crusades re- received good press as warriors of nobility, although not religion, during the Romantic period and the early 20th century. After the Second World War, however, opinion again turned decisively against the Crusades. In the wake of Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin, historians found war of any ideology distasteful. But the author here, Thomas Madden, goes on to explain in his book about how, especially since the 1970s, the Crusades have been studied very meticulously by scholars, and there is a much different take on them, a much more honest take on them. And he goes through in his book to debunk many of the myths about crusades. For instance, the myth that the crusades were wars of unprovoked aggression against a peaceful Muslim world, or that the crusades were crosses, but they were really only interested in capturing booty and land. Their pious platitudes were just a cover for rapacious greed. Or another one is the crusaders were just medieval colonialism dressed up in religious finery. There's a number of myths that he debunks. The point is that the Crusades started out originally, in the original intent, because remember, they were called upon, they were started by popes, and they went over a long period of time. And they started out in Western Europe, especially in the area of France, Normandy, and the Crusaders traveled all the way to the Holy Lands and passing through oftentimes what is today Istanbul. Back then, it was Constantinople. Now, that's the part that's of particular concern for us here at Light of the East. They were basically as I mentioned before, eight crusades. Most of them were not very successful. The first one was rather successful, but the point of them was to claim back, once again, the Holy Lands. You see, what happened was the Muslim invaders took over Jerusalem in the year 637 AD. But fortunately, there was relative peace between the Christian pilgrims that would come to the Holy Lands and the ruling Arabs, the Muslim Arabs at the time. But what happened was later on, the 11th century, the Seljuk Turks, they were a nomadic people from Central Asia, they converted to Islam and they were very aggressive and belligerent. And they conquered Constantinople, they harassed the pilgrims and pulled tolls, and they ravaged the holy places. So this went on for quite a while. Remember, pilgrims began to go to the Holy Lands as early as the 4th century. That's after Constantine, the head of the Roman Empire in what was Byzantium, later named Constantinople, and today Istanbul, Turkey. When he converted to Christianity and converted the empire with him, pilgrims would flood to the Holy Lands. But eventually their way was blocked, especially by these Turkish Muslims. So the first crusade actually happened in 1095 AD under Pope Urban II, and he launched the first crusade to try to make it possible for Christians to do pilgrimages to the Holy Lands. But remember, the Holy Lands, their lands were taken away from them by the invading Turks and Muslims. 
So this was not just a bunch of people a long time ago, a bunch of Christians who decided to go into areas now known as Turkey and the Holy Lands and beat up on people. This was considered to be a noble thing. And as the author Thomas Madden said, everyone thought of it that way at the time. Now, also what happened there is what happens all the time, especially in anything good, it can get commandeered or infiltrated by opportunists by people who do not have the right vision, but they use the crusade for their own selfish purposes. Yes, there was cruelty, there was pillaging, there was a lot of things that were not right. But all these things that were not right, they were committed by Christians during the crusades, but not because of the crusades. Any of those things were condemned, clearly condemned, by the popes. So when we talk about the Crusades, we have to really know what we're talking about. The best thing to do is to really research them. And again, I recommend to you this book by Thomas J. Madden. It is put out by Ignatius Press. And again, the title is A Concise History of the Crusades. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East's mission is Christianity's reunion and to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church. We need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by writing a check to Light of the East and mail it to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Hello, I'm Father Thomas Loya, and I am inviting you to the third annual women's retreat where I will be the retreat master for The Genius of Womanhood at the Shrine of Our Lady of Consolation Retreat Center in Cary, Ohio. Friday through Sunday, March 6th through the 8th, the third annual women's retreat, The Genius of Womanhood. More details, contact Joan Washburn at 419-798-9107. The Genius of Womanhood at the Shrine of Our Lady of Consolation Retreat Center in Cary, Ohio. Friday through Sunday, March 6th through the 8th. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. It's no secret that Father Loya and other speakers from the Tabor Life Institute are available to speak at your parish or group on marriage and family topics seen through the lens of St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Other topics include Eastern Christian spirituality and the significance of art in the church. The Tabor Life Institute can arrange for marriage encounters, parish missions, and can help your parish facilitate teen faith formation in either English or Spanish. For Father Loya and other speakers, contact the Tabor Life Institute by writing to taborlife at earthlink.net. That's Tabor spelled T-A-B-O-R, life, at earthlink.net. We join our Chaldean Catholics in prayer to the Mother of God for peace in the Middle East. Mother of God, Virgin Mary, be for us a safeguard from all illnesses and hardships. Through the great love you have for Christ, ask and beseech him to be merciful to us, to give healing to our ailments, to console the downtrodden, to unite those who are scattered, and to forgive us.
Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host on this first Sunday of Lent, the Sunday of Orthodoxy, meaning true faith, the Sunday of the triumph of icons. We were talking earlier in the first part of the program about the Crusades, and again, to get the truth about them, I recommended a good book put out by Ignatius Press. The book is called A Concise History of the Crusades by Thomas F. Madden. You can also get some insights by going to a website called ignatiusinsight.com and read a little bit about this book, and especially about some of the myths that are debunked by this author, some of the myths that are used to club us on the head as Christians and Catholics. For some reason, that word crusade is very explosive. Now, one of the reasons why it's also of particular importance to myself as an Eastern Catholic is because, as I mentioned, there were eight crusades, but the fourth crusade is the one that is of particular interest. Because at the fourth crusade, and I'm going to read just a little excerpt of it from the New Catholic People's Encyclopedia, and this is from Chicago, 1973, Chicago, where the home of Light of the East Studios are, here, Catholic Press, Chicago, 1973, but it still has a lot of good information in it. So it's a Catholic encyclopedia, so know it's pretty authentic stuff. The Fourth Crusade, now this happened in 1199 to 1204. It was commissioned by Pope Innocent III for the purpose of completely liberating Jerusalem, but turned out to be one of those most selfish and tragic of all the expeditions. The Crusaders were asked by Alexia, son of the deposed Isaac II, to drive his father's usurper from Constantinople and put him, Alexius, on the throne of Byzantium. They complied with his request, but he was soon deposed and replaced by Alexius V. The Crusaders then seized the city, ousted Alexius V, and installed Baldwin of Flanders as master of a new state, the Latin Empire of Constantinople. The effect of the crusade was to destroy the power of the Eastern Empire, which had been a bastion protecting the West. It also demonstrated the pitiful decline of the crusade ideal, with the liberators of the holy places being reduced to immoral mercenaries. In the Orthodox Roman Catholic dialogues, and this is especially among those who are rather hard-lying on the Orthodox side, they oftentimes bring up the Fourth Crusade. Because after that Fourth Crusade, the Eastern churches were never quite the same. It really did decimate them, very, very much humiliated them. And so they've always carried that theme, some of the hardliners in ecumenical dialogue. A lot of that has been eased and is in the process of being healed on most levels of ecumenical dialogue between the Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church, especially when St. John Paul II, when he was the Pope, apologized on behalf of the Roman Catholic Church to the Eastern churches for the Fourth Crusade. Now, John Paul II obviously had nothing to do with the Fourth Crusade. It happened a long, long time ago. But nonetheless, in humility and as a way of reaching out to the Eastern lung of the church, he apologized on behalf of the Roman Catholic Church for what it did centuries ago to the Eastern churches. So that's why the Fourth Crusade is of particular significance to all of us who are concerned about ecumenical relations. But once again, we have to accept the Pope's apology, at least I believe we should, and, and move on. So again, the Crusades are something that is a very highly explosive issue. And that's why there's all the more reason to try to come to learn about them, to learn what they really were about. Their intentions were good, and there were many honorable people involved. They got commandeered at times, and it was a mixed bag, but 
there is a truth to be found in all that, and I highly recommend that you do research that, especially with this book by Thomas Madden. As I mentioned, this is also the first Sunday of Lent in the Byzantine calendar, and that Sunday is also called the Sunday of Orthodoxy, the Sunday of the Holy Icons, or we can also say the Vindication of Holy Icons. Now, this happened in 842 AD. This was the final vindication. There was a big vindication at the Seventh Ecumenical Council in 787 AD. See, what happened in the church, and this raged for centuries, there was this controversy where some people in the church believe that taking a, a too literal interpretation of the scriptures, where it says you shall not make images and worship them, it was taken too literally, and along with other kinds of heresies got mixed in there. There were those in the church who were very much against any kind of pictorial representation of Jesus Christ, and of the Virgin Mary, of the angels, the saints, of the Trinity. And this was an extreme interpretation. This was a misinterpretation of a lot of things. It is very significant, very significant that this interpretation was overcome. That's why in the Eastern churches, we celebrate this Seventh Ecumenical Council separately, even though it's about art, but it's about more than just art. Even after the council, the controversy still raged, and so in 842 AD, the Empress Theodora finally proclaimed and vindicated icons once and for all. And this happened on the first Sunday of Lent. At that time, and that year happened to be March 11th. So ever since then, there are processions with icons inside Byzantine churches for the Sunday services. We do that at our church. We have the children parade around with the icons, holding them up proudly while we sing the particular dogmatic hymns of that Sunday. And we make a big deal out of it, because it is a big deal. The church made a big deal out of it. Even designating and setting apart one particular council that dealt with iconography. Why would there be such a big deal about artwork? Well, to understand that, we have to understand the Eucharist. We have to understand the mystical, sacramental theology of the church, the soul of the church. We have to understand the great mystery, the incarnation, that God became flesh. The second person of the Trinity entered into our reality entirely, except for sin. The second person of the Trinity, invisible, became visible through the physical creation that he himself set in place. And that makes all the difference in the world. See, there's two basic pillars above all that the Christian faith, in particular the Catholic and Orthodox faiths, rest upon. And everything rests upon this. A God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Trinity. Three distinct persons and never become confused, yet become one God. And secondly, the second person of that Trinity became human, fully human, enfleshed himself, incarnated himself, while still remaining the invisible God. It is upon these two pillars that we base everything that we believe, the whole moral code of conduct, a whole moral ethos, everything, our liturgy, our prayer, is based upon these two aspects, realities of God. And because that's true, and we believe in this great mystery, this incarnation in particular, it means that we can, in fact, depict through images, since God became an image himself in the person of Jesus Christ, we can, in fact, depict Christ, the Blessed Mother, the saints, the angels. We can depict them in icons, in images, whether on wood or stone or paint. And to say we can't is not a comment just about artwork. It's a comment about our belief or acceptance 
in the full reality of the incarnation, the great mystery. So yes, it made all the difference in the world whether we could have artwork in churches, images of Christ, his mother, the angels, the saints. Now notice I said Christ, the second person of Trinity. Iconography, as a rule, although you may see some icons that are different, but as a rule, we only depict the second person of the Trinity in image as Jesus Christ, because he became in flesh, he became an image that we could see and touch. God the Father did not, nor did the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came down and represented himself as a dove or tongues of fire, but he did not present himself. The third person of Trinity was not presented incarnationally as a person, as was the second person. So iconography is very strict about this. So it had a problem. How do we depict the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is so essential? How do we do that? Well, a great iconographer named Andrei Rublev, the Russian iconographer, came up with a brilliant solution. He took the story of Genesis 18, where three angels, notice three angels, visited Abraham, and afterwards he said, I was visited by God. This was one of the first foreshadowings of the Holy Trinity in the Old Testament. And Andrei Rublev took that story and thought to himself, I'll use the three angels as representations of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, symbols of them. And so he put them around this table, and that icon is called the Hospitality of Abraham, because that's, of course, what happened in Genesis 18. And so we have the depiction of the Trinity by means of three angels that symbolize Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's a lots and lots of meaning in that one icon, as there is in all icons. There's much to be said about iconography, and you'll be hearing more about that in many programs coming up. But I do thank you for listening to this program. I am Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Now, you can hear podcasts of Light of the East and never miss a program or hear one again and again and again. How is this possible, you may ask? Just visit ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. And click on the Light of the East tab. There you'll find Light of the East programs for listening or download and a link to a Light of the East iTunes subscription. Now you can hear Light of the East for the first time all over again, anytime you want. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the Light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh.